Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this final talk in the series on the meaning of the work of Christ, I want to conclude then with describing what salvation might look like in terms of the lie and traversing the fantasy. And we've had a series of talks. I begin then with the idea that there is the thing called radical evil. The point of this talk was not to affirm that there is radical evil, but that there is a category that people get caught up in that is in fact on the order of the way that radical evil uh, imagines or thinks of evil as a kind of ontological end in itself. And of course, I think this is the prime human problem. And so, in terms of what Christianity is all about, what the work of Christ is all about, and the primary contention here, I think this is what the work of sin primarily does, is that it's uh, connected to this notion of a radical evil, of a lie about radical evil that people are caught up in. And of course, this gets at theories of atonement. This gets at the, the very point of living out the ethic of Christ. I think that when we talk about that there's a fundamental disagreement in uh, the point of Christianity, I think that people may be uh, surprised, or maybe maybe they're not surprised, but maybe as Christians, we imagine that uh, there, there seems like that there should be a fundamental agreement as to what Christianity is about. And of course, in the history of the religion, what we recognize is that there really isn't an understanding of what it is that the center or the death of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ addresses. Because actually, if you change up any one of those categories, especially the death of Christ, you're going to change up the other two categories. And so in some systems, we don't have much, you know, the life of Christ is sort of set aside because the focus is primarily in penal substitution and even divine satisfaction. The primary focus is on the death of Christ and the payment that is pictured as being made. On, a, on the other hand, in somebody like Denny Weaver, uh, there is a kind of exclusive focus on the resurrection and not an understanding of a, the precise sense that Christ then frees us, that there is the necessity. And in this, I'm going back, I think, to the early church fathers into their picture of how it is that evil and sin get a grip on us, evil, you know, uh, death, sin, death, and the devil is the way that they're going to describe this. Gustav Allen will talk about Christus Victor, and I think there's some confusion about Christus Victor, but I think if we understand that it's flowing out of a New Testament understanding, then we'll get the idea that I've been talking about here, that Sin and evil, they're not separate categories, but that is that in some way that diabolical character that uh, of Satan or the devil is then connected to sin in an original depiction in which the evil of the one is connected through the lie, through the deception, uh, and this deception of this lie orders the human world. So this is certainly Irenaeus who talks about a, a deception that has captured us in salvation and 
is being delivered from from that deception. And so in this, I'm just, I just see my own work or the work of the New Testament as an intervention then by God into this human predicament of being deceived. Now, whether we want to talk about this deception on the part of a personal devil, that, uh, you know, that, that may be under contention here. And of course, that's what Anselm and Abel are. They're going to reject Christus Victor because they imagine that the, the devil in this understanding is, is given too much power. And indeed, I think they're, they're correct in that. That is that we don't want to picture God as paying, making a payment to the devil. Or, and, so they're, and, and I'm never quite sure in you know, someone like Origen who depicts this or Gregory of Nyssa that, that they picture this in a kind of crude terminology. Maybe they're just illustrating this and they don't hold to the notion that Christ is the bait on the hook or that there's trickery in it. But it, but certainly the metaphor that they use is, is assigning trickery to God. It's uh, depicting the devil as in some way having the power here. So I think that we can revise that understanding and get at the notion, first of all, I think we need to depict the, the law of sin and death in a way that it does not lend too much weight to either the devil, but of course neither does this understanding of the atonement have anything to do with changing God or solving God's problem. And I think we the advantage of Christus Victor, or uh, you know what is really being talked about in the New Testament is that people have the problem, and the work of Christ addresses the human problem. This does several things. First of all, we we understand it preserves uh, the understanding of the continuity of the Trinity. There's not one person of the Trinity, the Father in his wrath and anger, pitted over another person of the Trinity in his love. There really is an undoing of every doctrine, I think, or at least a challenge to the doctrines of the New Testament in both divine satisfaction and penal substitution. But once we turn to the understanding that, no, actually it's God's intervening into the human problem, the human predicament, and we can describe that psychologically. And of course, the danger is whenever you use the term psychology or psychological, that there is so much pop psychologizing in theology, that, and, and we certainly don't want to get caught up in that. And so we need to immediately uh, include the notion that, yes, but the psychological is interconnected with the social, and all of this is interconnected with the historical traje trajectory of human beings. That is that the issue here pertains to people, and people are socio-cultural historical beings, and the, the solution is historical, social, psychological, cultural in the same way. This is no minor point because I think what you get in Calvinism and, and, and satisfaction theory uh, both is an ahistorical depiction of the atonement. And so the break that you're going to get between the ethics of the New Testament and the Gospels in particular and the theology, I think that it is in making the theory of the atonement a theory that floats free of the life, death, resurrection of Christ. That is, it's an exchange that takes place primarily in the mind of God. And so the point here that whatever we conclude that 
the point of our understanding is not that we're going to harmonize, you know, that God's mind is in conflict or that God, the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity are in conflict. Nor is this, there the sense of satisfying the honor of God. This is the language of Anselm. And he almost pictures the honor of God as if it floats free from who God is. And of course, this is part of the problem that the law or the righteousness, you know, of God becomes abstracted from the person of God. This is, you know, historically connected to the rise of uh, the idea of that, that righteousness is going to be established through retribution. And maybe this is established then, too, through the notion of penance. That is, that in the Catholic Church, there is more and more a focus on the, the penance that one does then to be put back into a right relation. Whatever the historical development here, I think that we can see that it's not God that, that needs appeasing. It's not God that needs a satisfying. It's not God's anger. Uh, but it's human, the human condition. And so we need, I think, once, once we shift to the notion that the primary problem is a lie that pertains to the human condition, to who God is. This eliminates theories like that of Anselm or Calvin. It eliminates any projection of violence, you know, that God needs to punish or that there, there needs to be retribution on the part of God because God's wrath demands it and we need to harmonize God. And it also then removes the focus on future eternal punishment. It, it shifts from, you know, law-based notions. And so we'll come back, you know, certainly the law in Anselm and in Calvin is actually playing the primary role that Calvin, well, Anselm too, that they're both really talking about an understanding of atonement in terms of a particular legal theory. And even the legal theory, I think, here is confused. Part of the issue here is just setting aside the complication. You know, a lot of this, I, I sometimes think that all of the, you know, that cruder forms of Christus Victor or even the theory of Anselm, that there is simply an attempt to illustrate what is happening in the atonement or in the work of Christ. And so that in trying to simplify it, there's actually a complication that occurs. And now we're left with a obscured notion. And so the biblical picture is actually quite simple. And that is that it's not God, it's not the devil that require the death of Christ, but it's the human circumstance and that there is a orientation to death. And so his death is going to play a primary role because he's going to defeat the orientation inherent in the law of sin and death. And so this doesn't fit with ransom theories or forms of Christus Victor that we sometimes have described. You know, the term Christus Victor is uh, Gustav Allen is describing all of the early church fathers as holding to this. And his point is that the ransom theories may in fact be a kind of perversion of what they're really talking about. That may be, but there certainly is the picture that the devil in some way receives the payment from God. And, of course, the picture is actually that, yes, there is a ransom from slavery, but to extend that metaphor of someone actually receiving a payment, whether it's God or the devil, 
Well, that, that's missing the point that what is happening is that there's a dynamic that is an enslaving dynamic. And it's not God that does this. And really, the person of the devil, uh, pictured simply as the one that is doing this, is, or, is already, I think, a confusion. And so what we need to, to depict, you know, this is part, partly the understanding of that our depiction of a, a lie, a particular kind of lie, a lie about the nature of the human situation, that there's autonomy, that there's an ontological category that is outside of God that resides, you know, in humans or maybe resides elsewhere than God, is already then a, a kind of enslaving understanding. No person is going to receive this payment, but the point is that the death of Christ is addressing the orientation to death, to the law that enslaves, and I'll explain this a bit more. But here it's enough to say that no one receives the payment. This is a metaphor that, if taken too far, uh, is going to create a confusion. It was Gustav Allen in 1931. His book was published in England. He sums up the early theories of the atonement. Allen is saying that the classic ransom theory of the atonement, you know, the idea that Christ's death is a ransom to the powers of evil, it is not simply the devil. If Allen is correct in this, then I think that we can call what is being described in Romans and elsewhere as Christus Victor. Uh, and of course, it's Anselm Canterbury who's going to supplant this understanding with his notion of satisfaction. That would take a whole study to explain you know, why that occurs. It's certainly involving the conversion of Constantine and the rise of Constantinian Christianity. There is a shift in the the very studies in theology, I think that this is, would, would make for an endless sort of study. But there is a shift between uh, Augustine and Anselm. And though Anselm is going to think of himself as a little Augustine, by the time that he's writing, so much has happened that they're actually doing something quite different. And so the way that Allen pictures this is that the victory in Christus Victor is a victory over the powers of sin, death, and the devil. Allen argues that the notion of ransom theory that's uh, commonly pictured, the primary payment is represented the liberation of humanity from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil. And so thus the term Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, indicates the idea of ransom should not be seen in terms of, as Anselm did, as a business transaction. In fact, that may be a kind of projection back into the early uh, church as a, as a transaction with the devil, but it should be seen more in terms of a rescue or liberation of humanity from the slavery of sin, the sickness of sin, the bondage of sin. And so the chief distinction between Christus Victor and the satisfaction view is the contrary emphasis really given you know, to the Trinity that actually in satisfaction theories there's a discontinuity, a kind of break in the persons of the Trinity between the Father and the Son. And there may be a kind of legal continuity, but Christus Victor emphasizes, no, that there's a, God is unchanging. God 
is not benefited. There's a divine continuity. There's certainly a, a legal discontinuity, and that, that is that the law is not the same thing in the sight of the sinner and the sight of God, that the, the, God, the, the law is wholly just and good in and of itself, but the problem is that there is a deception in regard to the law. And so I think in this that Alden uh, is correct. And certainly this doesn't fit with Anselm's theory. That pictures the whole exchange primarily in terms of, I really think it's a, a legal theory of uh, God's honor being satisfied or Calvin's penal substitution. They're both legal theories, you know, which is really of a, a medieval origin. That is already a misunderstanding of what the New Testament means by words like righteousness. Righteousness doesn't pertain to some abstraction from God or um, a kind of legalistic righteousness, but it means that, that God is making things right in the world, that God that things are not right and God is making things right, so it's not a problem within God. You know, Abelard and Anselm both were unhappy with the notion of Christus Victor, the notion of uh, the devil being given too much power. And maybe they're right. That, that Yeah, I think that, that in some of these theories he may be seen as playing too large a role, and so they're trying to remove the devil entirely from the equation. They're really offering alternative theories in order to have a more sophisticated understanding, maybe. What they're rejecting is the notion that, oh, the devil killed Jesus or that God gave Jesus to the devil as a ransom. Allen's point, that's really not what is happening in Christus Victor, that Christ is, his point is that Christ is victorious over sin and death. And he defeats then this dynamic. And what I would add to that is the dynamic functions then in the way that Irenaeus pictures it's functioning, or the idea that Paul will consistently depict it as functioning in and through a lie. He's going to outline it this way again and again, that there is an exchange of the truth for a lie. You know, this is Romans, that the creator as the prime object of service and worship is displaced. Paul is, and the other writers of the New Testament are referring to the picture in Genesis. This is certainly what Paul is describing in Ephesians, the, the, the same sequence, you know, people have given themselves over to the archon of this world. They're, they're godless in the cosmos. That is, that they've exchanged the creation for the creator. They become, then, children of wrath. But, of course, this children of wrath is the sense that they're given over to their desires. This is the, the picture in Romans, but it's the picture in Ephesians and actually not just Romans 1 or 2 but it's the picture there in Romans 7 also even if you had to turn to the theological heart of the New Testament I really think it is Romans 7 6 7 8 5 6 7 8 maybe uh, in which might be summed up in 8 2 that Paul describes the transition he'll describe this transition as in five, as the transition from uh, the first Adam to the second Adam, he'll describe the transition in Romans 6 as the transition from death 
to life, that is, you're baptized, that you die to sin and you're raised again. And then in chapter 8, he'll say that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. And this is the summation, I think, of what he's really been talking about from 5 on. And so what he's depicting is there's two sorts of conditions. There's two laws. And, of course, what he means by law is to describe a kind of unfolding necessity that there's two sorts of peoples or there's two sorts of conditions that are described in Romans 7 and 8, respectively. The law of sin and death is then the perversion of law, and it doesn't matter what law, because the perversion of the law always function the same. You know, it's the Mosaic law, which is certainly holy, just, and good, but the sin then does something to the law. You can debate what he means by the law of the heart. Whatever he's referring to, what he means by those who have simply abstraction of law, that they're going to pervert that law. And so the law of life that he's describing here in one frees from the law of sin and death. It displaces the law of death that is actually in the focus, of course, is I. You know, he says I over and over again. He'll say I is about as many times as he's going to talk about a corporate entity in the Holy Spirit. He'll say I and me and seven, and all of this gets displaced. There is no I in chapter eight. And so chapter seven describes the what this death feels like, I think that's actually what he's describing, that it is a repetition of the Genesis story in, in which I is repeated by Adam. Now Paul is repeating it. And this occurs in what Paul is calling the body of death or the body of sin. He'll use both phrases to describe this. He'll describe it as a life of slavery to fear, here is the enslavement, the suffering of this eye. You know, we can see the suffering in Genesis. It's connected to alienation, but we can also see the suffering there in Romans 7, that it's implicit then in the use of eye, that eye is always a split eye in the Bible. Eye is grammatically, experientially, it's in the middle voice. That is, that it's the eye that is at once active, but the eye is also passive. The eye is the cause of the suffering, and the eye is passive in that it is the object of the suffering. And of course, this sounds very much like the split between the law of the mind, the law of the spirit. Paul's using the word ego that Freud and others are going to pick up, and Freud will describe the split between the superego, which is the law. But of course, even Freud understands this isn't the law in any ethical sense, but the law, in fact, is the very heart of immorality. And so there's a split between, we could say it most simply, between the mind and the body. And so this is what Paul says in summation. The question that he raises is a kind of summation of his description of this suffering I, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? And this wretched man, this is the argument in among Christians. Who is this wretched man? And the way that I'm picturing this wretched man, first of all, it's the non-Christian I, 
But it is the non-Christian eye recognized for what he is or what it is from the perspective of one who has escaped this bind upon them. That is, that one that is in the midst of this suffering could not spell it out in the way that, that the writer or that Paul does. In the same way that Adam could not spell out you know, what it is that afflicts him. And so chapter 7, and what I'm describing is the movement of Christianity, and I think it's captured then in these chapters of Romans, and that every theory of the atonement can really be fit into these understandings. That is, that we're, we're really already hitting issues of punishment. What is the punishment? What is the condemnation? Well, we've already seen the condemnation. It's this condemnation inherent in the eye. It's not an added condemnation, it's not a future condemnation, but it is the suffering that Paul is describing. It is a suffering that we might say is inherent to sin. Now, that's not to say that God in some way isn't playing a role, that certainly God has instituted death, that there is the wrath of God in the de delimitation of human life, but the way that Paul describes this painful desire is really the split in, in, in himself. And so when chapter 8 speaks of rescue from this condemnation, I think we often get confused. Paul's not talking about some future condemnation. No, he's talking about the thing he's just described in, throughout chapter 7. And if we think of the problem of chapter 7 as primarily isolation and alienation, uh, this is the condemnation. And the way it's cured is that all that is in chapter 7 is undone in chapter 8, and primarily the isolation, alienation, is undone through a corporate identity that Paul will describe in Christ or in the Holy Spirit, which are the same thing. That is, that the environment of the one was the isolated individual in the law of sin and death, the body of death, and then the this environment is changed up, that there is the corporate in Christ, being in Christ. And this is interconnected then with other people. It is interconnected with God. But actually it's inter interconnected with the whole cosmos, that it's uh, all creation. But then it, chapter 8 of Romans gives us the clearest depiction of the Trinity that we have. And in this understanding of the Trinity, we see the Father is the primary agent. The Father created the world, he created the cosmos, and the Father is the one who subjected creation and hope. Uh, the Father who is the one who makes all things work to the good for those who love him. The Father is the one who has foreknown and predestined those he's called, and he's justified and glorified these. And then they, we see that the communion is always a communion. In, in a sense, Christ is not an object in this, but Christ is in the subject position because the communion is in Christ Jesus, and it's Christ Jesus who is set free from the law of sin and death. He's done this by condemning sin in the flesh, and it's Christ who gives his spirit of life so that those who suffer with him will be glorified together with him. And so as he died, I'm just going through Romans 8, and the conclusion here in 34 to 35, that he died and was raised and to intercede 
And then Paul goes through and says that nothing can separate from the love of God. And so there's the Father and the Son, and then the Spirit is really given prime place, and it mentioned some 19 times. And the Spirit is the source of life in 8.2. The, the Spirit is the one who empowers the walk and mindset of those who are in Christ. The Spirit is God's righteousness, he says. The Spirit gives power to your mortal bodies. It is by the power of the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. And it's actually the Spirit then that creates the bond to God in which we can cry out. The Spirit enables his sons to cry, Abba, Father. And in this cry then and there's a new relationship, uh, a participation then in the Trinity, a very kind of Eastern Orthodox, I think, participation in the person of the Trinity. And the Spirit is the one who in weakness, in our weakness and in our prayer, he intercedes for the saints. And so the Trinity is a communion in which and through which there is this new humanity, this new humanity walks in this, that they have their mindset, their sonship, their endurance of suffering, the possibility of hope. It all takes place then in, in this understanding of the Trinity. And so the environment here, think of the difference, the isolated individual and this fantastic environment of life in Christ. Really, this is, this is salvation. This is, we've just described, the move from death to life. Everything that you say after this is really an explanation of this move. And, of course, there's no end of explanation. We need to sum up. We need to say, you know, how does this problem work? How is it that sin is lodged in us? And Paul certainly describes this, this body of death. He will depict the way that it functions. I think we actually get a deep insight, a psychological insight, but also a sociological or cultural insight. But elsewhere he's going to talk about the powers, you know, the principalities and powers. We understand how deceptive desire works. Uh, he talks about the rise of another law. He says, I feel another law at work. And this law is voided. You know, it's not the law of God that's voided. It's this other law, the law of sin and death. Uh, the punish that, and, and it's this law that carries out the punishing effects that condemn. And so, that's what 1 to 3, when God has condemned the law of sin through the death of Christ, that there is now no condemnation. So the problem, again, it's not God's law that is a problem, but we could say, but it is the perversion, it is the orientation of this law summed up in the law of sin and death. And so Christ ushers in a new law, the law of life in the Spirit. And this enables an ability for righteousness. I think this is an atonement theory. This is a description of the work of Christ. There is this key difference that Paul's describing. He'll describe it in any number of ways between, you know, the, in the chapters from 5 to 8, the two Adams, life to death. But then also between chapter 7 and 8, there's one clear difference, and that is that we might call the, the subject of chapter 7, the subject of desire, that is the desire unfolding in this person. It is this painful desire at work. 
And the subject of chapter 8 is the subject of hope. The subject of hope is really the one who is enabled to be a participant in the Trinity. The subject of desire is deceived. It's deceived because it makes the law means, it imagines the law as the means of achieving the self. So chapter 7, the primary relationship, is a relationship to the law, not to God. And this is the deception that enters in. There's a kind of loss of not only God, but there's a loss of self. And Paul actually depicts this in the language here. That's very Freudian, you know, when he talks about the eye objectifies. He's using the word blepo, or he sees himself. And that is, you know, in a Lacanian understanding that there's the two registers, the register of the law or the register of the symbolic. And this is one that we can articulate, we can speak. And then the other register is one that we see. And so there's the spectral register. There's the register of language. There's the mind. There's the body. And what happens then is that we objectify ourselves, that the one eye objectifies the other. And we find, you know, in Paul's description there, a kind of alien force at work within us. And this alienation in which, you know, he's describing himself out of control, that is the the problem behind evil works. And then once, once we see the nature of the problem is the spectral relationship, then we can understand why the importance that Paul will put upon hope And he emphasizes that hope is not seen. He says if it's seen, it's not hope at all. And the idea is that this hope that is within sight, this thing, this desire that has a grip on us is gripped by the seeing, the spectral relationship, the bodily image. In Lacanian terms, the image in the mirror or the image of others. There is the continual pursuit of that image But that is displaced then by the image of Christ, and the image of Christ then is not one that appears that you can't see. Christ is the Word. Whereas the spectral language relationship, there's the split, and you would imagine that you could in some way find the self or fulfill the self, fulfill the law through a self-relation. Well, hope is focused on conformity to the unseen image of Christ. There's no misrecognition. What the meconnaissance, the the misrecognition of the body, we often identify ourselves, that there's a kind of rejection of the mortal body. You know, this is the idea of a kind of innate immortality that's nearly universal, that Paul's actually describing that through the Spirit, there, it's not that death is rejected or denied. This is where hope comes in, the hope of the resurrection. The spirit of hope is that the body is resurrected. And so where desire arises through lack, the split, the lack of self, the entry of alienation, negation, death, hope is the ground of this new life in the spirit which has as its goal the conformity to the image of Christ. And this is why the will is kind of disenabled. In chapter 7, I do what I don't want to do and what what I want to do, I don't do, that there's an incapacity of the will. 
And Paul is describing in chapter 8 that now one can achieve his likeness. There's a dynamic process of walking as he did, of setting the mind on the things of the spirit of active submission, of patience, uh, the hope of resurrection. It is dynamic. It, you know, this is uh, Jurgen Moltmann describes that it deals with, it endures the vicissitudes of history because it's no longer bound itself to a kind of static orientation that it easily, in its rigidness and static nature, breaks apart in the acceptance of the mortal body and in the acceptance of this reality of resurrection, and you know, in light of the resurrection, there is no longer slavery to fear of the punishing effects of the law. You know, the writer of Hebrews, I think, is very Pauline in describing this as then that is the deception. There's no punishing law, there's no punishing conscience, for through the spirit of sonship, you know, we now have a direct relationship to God. We can cry out, Abba, Father, and the law does not mediate or create an obstacle. And so the subject of life is over and against the subject of death. One passes from death to life. This is what theology should be about, is describing this. We don't need metaphors so much. You know, I'm afraid the metaphors have, have misdirected us. The theories of the atonement have misdirected us from this prime reality that I think all of the New Testament, whatever the metaphor, and there are metaphors of the law court, there are metaphors of enslavement that are being used, but I think they all need to feed into and build upon this prime understanding. Now, of course, this raises some question. Has Paul left out the devil, and so is this Christus Victor? No, the devil is there, but no longer as a personified agent. You know, Paul seems to be, in chapter 7, making direct reference to Genesis 3. If we equate the serpent there with the devil, which um, maybe is the, the usual reference, Paul just says that this is sin. That is, the dynamic of the lie, the dynamic of the law of sin and death, that Paul equates with sin, that is the work that Satan performed in Genesis. So there's no role for the serpent in Paul's picture like there is in Genesis. Now, and elsewhere, he'll talk about the prince of the power of the air. He'll talk about the principalities and powers. But in a sense, these principalities and powers, once we understand the way they function, that they're always you know, functioning in the same way, they're, they're creating the same deception, that is that they're going to displace God through a lie, that they're going to take upon themselves the notion that they have the authority of life and death, that they can provide life, they can provide identity. Uh, this is just what all powers do, and so whether it's the power of America, the power of Rome, uh, and the, the point here is not simply a singular personal force. You know, what about the, the wrath of God, well, it's not completely removed from the punishing effects of the law of sin and death. There's a kind of admixture in Paul's explanation that divine wrath is there, no matter what you do with Romans 1. You know, this is Douglas Campbell's theory, is that Romans 1, the picture, you know, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, 
I think I think we need not get rid of that explanation there, but divine wrath is clearly displayed in human death. The judgment passed on sin, uh, but also the idea is that the, the condemnation is also inherent to sin, that it's a natural fruit of sin. It's not something that is simply imposed by God. And so this is there in chapter 5, that death reigned from the time of Adam. And so God condemns sin through death, but Paul is describing this death in a, in a different mode, that it is the condemnation that we bring upon ourselves, that it is an active human implementation of death. And death is the, you know, it's inherent, it's a kind of living death. Substitution, I think we need to get rid of Calvinist or Anselmian notions of substitution. But certainly Christ has intervened into the human situation, that he's taken up the condemnation that is meted out and inherent to sin. So God has condemned sin in the flesh of Christ, Paul says in 8.3, so that it no longer deals out death by deception. That is, he's condemned condemnation. He's dealt out death to death, and as a result, there is no condemnation in Christ. Paul, you know, the law of sin, that he, he's going to describe it cons consistently as the principle of the flesh. And I, you know, the flesh here is not simply the physical body, but the flesh is this sin principle, that sin that dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. And so the flesh is uh, it's sort of the body in this sense that has taken flight you know the law of the, the flesh is the the body over and against the mind i suppose you can talk that way but paul will he'll always talk about the the sinfulness the sinful flesh and this is different than soma you know the body in paul and so those who are found in his likeness through baptism they enter into the body of Christ, and it's an embodied baptism. And so the sin principle in the flesh does not appear in the baptized. That is, that the, the, the sin principle no longer is the controlling principle. The sin which works through deception and ignorance, you know, that's what brings about disobedience unto death. And the one who was obedient even unto death makes obedience possible. That is that Christ is laying out a different embodiment, a different sort of way of being incarnate, a different sort of humanity. We can ask the same thing about the law. But, uh, the law is always a marker of something here. It's not definitive of the problem, you know, as you get in Anselm or Calvin, nor is it definitive of the solution, but it certainly marks both in that Paul links the capacity behind, you know, the cry, Abba, Father, that there's been an, a shift, an ontological shift, that previously there was an incapacity to obey the law, and now, as he says in 8, 4, 11, that we can meet the righteous requirements of the law. And I, this is not, you know, he's describing this in great detail, that we can think, we can act, that the mind, the walk, it's not simply a forensic shift, you know, as in Luther, a kind of imputed righteousness. But now the incapacity 
has been replaced with an, a capacity and even an obligation. And so the law there that was the marker of an incapacity is now the marker of a capacity. And so this is, I think, the explanation that whatever theories we might have, I think they're always feeding into this basic explanation of dying with Christ and being raised again. That move, that is the work of Christ. That is salvation. And these other understandings that will put hell or heaven or imputed righteousness or penal substitution or divine satisfaction or payments to the devil, payments to God. These were all, I think, attempts to illustrate something which the Bible says straightforward here. Dying with Christ can be understood as the death or the victory over the lie, this alienating lie that has us in our grip, and we can begin a new kind of life. It's a life that is always in communion, in the body of Christ, in the church, through the persons of the Trinity, through the, the Spirit, and brings about the new relationship to Abba. There is a direct relationship to the Father. So, this is my description then. This concludes this, this series of talks in which I've described the problem as a kind of lie of radical evil, that is, of an ontological category. That's the lie that we live in. Do we traverse the fantasy or we recapitulate that? The lie is exposed. But this is what I think that Paul is picturing, a traversing of the fantasy in chapter 7. That is, he sees what has happened, and then the recapitulation you know, is complete in chapter 8 in which we take up this new life in Christ. So, I'll end there until next time. But if you would go on and like our podcast, if you would look at our website that you can donate uh, through Outreach International, we do have a Patreon page that you can become a member of our book club or of our various activities. Uh, we are a donation-supported ministry. And so we appreciate uh, all support. And we have just finished the book of Ephesians, the book of Philemon, the class there. And we'll be telling you about the upcoming class. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.